Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with the beautiful Sue Kalinsky. Good morning, Sue. Oh my God, that is the biggest compliment you've ever given me. I know, I've, I've been I've been waiting on that one. I've been waiting on that one until just the right day. And I thought here, since we're recording in the morning when neither of us do our best work, I would start off with a compliment. Now, your compliment for me is? You are a very, very handsome man, Steve Mason. <laughs> Thank you. That's very nice. A lot of affirmation this morning. That's great news. Uh, we got a really cool guest. Our guest is a television fixture starting his career as Theo Huxtable on The Cosby Show. Since then, he has starred in the series Malcolm and Eddie, the sitcom Read Between the Lines. And now, since 2018, he has been starring in the Fox medical drama The Resident, which has its season finale on April the 20th. Malcolm Jamal Warner is here. Malcolm, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, guys. So we've been catching up on Resident, uh, The Resident, and one of the things that jumps out at me is the complexity of your character, that he's kind of a, a God complex, bad guy, swaggery kind of thing, but still uh, has, a, uh, has a solid, good core. Describe this character. Yeah, well, he's um, the thing that that's always intrigued me uh, about Doctor Austin is that he's um, you know he, he's arrogant, he's brash, um, he uh, is very skilled, um, and and one of the things that that I really enjoyed was that this wasn't a, a character who was arrogant uh, because he was overcompensating. Um, he's arrogant because he just he has that much confidence, and you know, he's one of the top cardiothoracics in the country. And he's damn good at, at what he does, um, yet still a good guy. And so that, that's what attracted me because I'm always, obviously, I'm getting cast to, I'm always playing the, the nice guy, the sweet guy, the good guy. So here's a guy who's still a good guy, but just, you know, sometimes can be a dick. Yeah. I could, uh, I could use some of that in my own life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to play a clip. Uh, here you are as uh, Dr. DJ Austin. Um, and a scene where you're facing a difficult challenge. Your patient Rose has a splenic sequestration. It's starting to infarct. We gotta get this out of her right away. Well, that's not gonna be easy. She's been transfused so many times, her body destroys everything we give her. She can't take any more transfusions. You're giving me a patient who needs an extremely bloody surgery and asking me not to spill any blood. Yeah. Got it. So um, in preparing for a role like this, um, how do you, what, what do you do I mean, to make it look so effortlessly like you really know what you're talking about? <laughs> well, one of the things that, that really helps is that uh, there's always, we have, we have a really wonderful crew. So it's, it's not just us. It's, it's the, 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 the totality of everybody's part that makes uh, us look like we know what we're doing. Like, of course, we have to know the dialogue, but, you know, we have medical, consultant, medical consultants on the show who are, you know, at work with us every single day. Uh, the show is just it is lit and shot and cut so well that even uh, when I watch the show and I see those surgeries, I go, 
man, we look bad at. <laughs> <laughs> and that has, to, you know, that has a lot to do with, uh, you know, with, with, with everybody's, everybody else's work as well. Um, when, you know, the reality of it is, um, you know, we play as actors, we play a part of the puzzle, you know, and, and, and that's not, that's not being self-deprecating or any of that. It's like the reality is that, uh, you know, though we are in front of the cap in front of the camera, uh, it takes a, a whole production crew to play their parts of the whole to uh, make us shine. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So, I wanted to ask you, like, after four seasons of, of playing a cardiologist, is that... Uh, cardio, is that cardiothoracic. Cardiothoracic. Oh, okay. I didn't mean to, ins- I didn't mean to insult you. Um, <laughs> so after four seasons... Um, what, what do you think your skill set is as, as a doctor? Like if you were in a restaurant and someone was choking on a chicken bone, do you think you could step in? <laughs> I could call 911. I can pull up my phone. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I can hit up Google and see what to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not the guy you want when there's an emergency going on. <laughs> Um, I mentioned the term God complex and I don't fully know what it means. Does, does your character have a God complex? Um, I no. uh, AJ does not have, it's, it's not a God complex because he's, he's very clear, um, that though he's, he's very skilled. He's also an instrument of God. Um, and he's very clear that you know that, that that surgery is a combination of science and art. Um, so he does have a level of arrogance, but it's not God complex. Um, whereas you take Dr. Kane, Morris Chestnut's character, uh, very much a God complex kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though that is a uh, you know it's a a cliche. Um, you know, it's very real. And I would imagine uh, that it actually takes an extraordinary surgeon not to have a God complex. Because hmm. like literally every single day, your hands are, um, you know, the difference between life and death. Yeah. So I, I would imagine that, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult not to have that God complex. Have you ever been in an operating room for a surgery? Like, has that ever been part of your preparation? No, and it's something that I, I wanted to do early on, and it just never happened. But I was, you know, we were, I was literally having this conversation with uh, Andrew Chapman yesterday, one of our uh, one of our showrunners, and uh, we were talking about his experience. Uh, you know, he spent uh, two weeks, uh, you know, in, uh, uh, in in ORs and and following doctors around, and we talked about that God complex. Um, and how it's, you know, it's very real, but there is, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't want to say valid. I don't want to say there's validity to it, but there's definitely a, a sincere, genuine understanding of why that, com- that God complex is present. It just, just watching the show, I mean, it just gets so intense. You know, you're watching the surgery and people, you know, like drilling in people's heads and flaps of skin <laughs> are being peeled back. And, and I remember shows where you would have like the gallery 
where you would see residents, you know, looking on, you know, for for educational yeah. purposes. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking while I was watching this, the show that they should they should use that kind of like as a as like a bullpen, you know, because sometimes things go wrong with a doctor, you know, where you have like a bunch of relief doctors up up in the gallery. Oh, so at like it, some point, it's not working you mean, you're out. Going, it's like, let's go to the left handed surgeon. Bring in the, yeah, bring in the left hander, you know, to, to take over. Right. I. I don't think that a surgeon's God complex would allow that. <laughs> this is my surgery. I'm going to finish this. Even if I've messed up. So I want to ask you about uh, Cosby Show because it's, it's a fascinating story how you wound up on that show. There was a nationwide search and you apparently tested on the final day. Is that right? Yes, yes. My agent had submitted me when, when the calls first came out. My agents submitted me. Um, they were looking for a 6'2", 15-year-old. Hmm. And I was 5'5", five, five, and 13. And, and I remember seeing you know, one of the original drafts of the script, and it was a running joke um, because, uh, because Ennis Cosby was, you know, was an inch taller than, uh, than Mr. Cosby. So the, the running joke was you know, Theo would do something and Cliff would say, you know, Theo, stand up. And Theo would stand up and would be an inch taller than Cliff. And then he'd say, Theo, sit down. So that was kind of the running joke. But they could not find that actor uh, who was 6'3 and was able to pull that off, 6'2 and pull it off. So uh, they finally, uh, on, and I remember this, is, I, and, and I tell the story every year because it was Good Friday, 1984. Hmm. And my mom and I had been out all day because she had the day off and we we're just going to hang out all day. And we got home, and fortunately, uh, we had an answering machine. We had about five or six messages from my agents saying, you've got this audition for Bill Cosby. And we got home around 5 o'clock, and uh, we got the message. And my agent called casting and talked them into waiting for me. So I really didn't audition until about 6.30 on hmm. Friday, and the final callbacks were that Monday. And the casting director had left, so, so I ended up meeting with the casting assistant and, you know, we finished and she got on the phone. She's like, you guys, you have to come back to the office. You got to come back. So, you know, uh, uh, Tim Flack and Jeff Ocean came back. Uh, I read for them. And the next thing I knew, Monday, I was there with um, you know, everybody else who were reading for all the other roles. Uh, there were two other guys up for Theo, a guy from Chicago, a guy from New York, and I was the guy from L.A. And um, Whitney Houston was there because she was reading. Whitney for- Houston was there? Wow. She was reading for, uh, I guess, Denise. Uh, Shirley wow. was reading for Claire. Jalil White was reading <laughs> for Rudy because they weren't sure if Rudy was going to be a boy or a girl. So when they cast uh, the, they still kept the name Rudy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, man. It was, yeah. So to look back on that day and, and, and uh, you know, just kind of see where we all are now, it's, it's really a trip. I had the uh, coolest experience. I, you know, did stand up for a very long time, and uh, it was kind of early in my career. A girlfriend of mine was the warm-up comic. Do you remember Angela Scott? Yes. Okay, definitely. so Angela invited myself and a couple of comics to a taping, and then when when Bill found out that we were comics, he invited us to have lunch with him back in his little area. Yeah. And. Yeah. It was so thrilling for us, you know, as young comics to be hanging out with, you know, this like, you know, our our idol, basically. But the thing about Cosby was that he seemed much more excited 
to be sitting with young comics and just talking with us about the craft. Yeah. Um, and I want to know, like, what, what was it like working with him? And, and like, what was the one thing as an actor that, that he gave you that was priceless? Um, I can say one among, you know, so many, um, is he always talked about comedy in, in such a way uh, where he talked about play the honesty of the moment, not the comedy of the moment. Because if you just go for the comedy, you're going to get this surface level, you know, ha-ha. But, but, but find the truth in the comedy. Um, and he always talked about that even in, even in any serious situation, you can always find the comedy. So there was a level of uh, authenticity that, you know, I've always, you know, chased, um, you know, as an actor, because I, I always wanted to be, uh, you know, the, I've always wanted my funny to stand the test of time, as opposed mm. to, you know, we may, we may, you know, we'll watch some shows now that may have been funny in the moment, but then we look back and go, you know, that really was, but it wasn't that funny. You know, uh, so there was just, a, a, I guess, a sense of overall longevity and timelessness that uh, was always on the forefront of my mind when working with him and just seeing how, you know, how long, you know, he's been doing what he's been doing. I knew at 14 that I wanted to have a career that was going to be just as long. So, like, I literally grew up with a maniacal obsession with life after Cosby because I didn't want to be one of those where are they now kids. I wanted to, to always be, uh, always be able to work. You know, even when I was uh, like around 15, 16 and we do these, these press junkets, you know, and people would be like, well, how does it feel to be successful? And even at 15, I was very clear on, um, I said, well, the show's successful doesn't mean I'm successful. Um, and it won't be until I'm 40, 50, 60 years old, still working consistently as an actor, will I be able to look back and say, I've had a successful career. And overnight, I'm 50. And <laughs> 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 really, overnight. But I look back and, and, and now I can finally, um, I think it was before 50, but I got to the point where I realized that I was able to let go of that maniacal obsession. It's like, you know what? I have actually, I've had a, a, a really uh, fruitful post Cosby show life, um, you know, uh, as a man and as an actor. So I could let go of that concern that I will never work again. Mm. You know? Doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that the work, uh, that the work that I have to do uh, to continually get better as an artist, uh, that doesn't stop, but I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, I will never work again. I still have to work hard and bust my ass, but yeah. I don't have a concern of I'll never work. Again. So one of my favorite scenes in Cosby show history is where Theo gets the ugly shirt. <laughs> the ugly shirt scene is just classic stuff. We all, we always talk about the puffy shirt from Seinfeld, but the ugly shirt from Theo never gets enough shine. Here's a, here's a little clip of that. Ask me the question again. You don't like it? I hate it. Look, 
better than I could do. <laughs> Look at these sleeves. My arm is the same length. Why aren't my sleeves? This collar's all crazy and his inside is too big. Maybe you tucked it in a little more. It's tucked into my socks. So what's interesting to me is you you mentioned your post Cosby career and wanting to make a mark. So many of your uh, the the other kids on the show have done really really well in life. What was it about that set that that you think produced you know pe- people who work and people who've gone on to have successful careers? Well, I think the the, the first thing, if I can speak for uh, and and this is me trying to speak for everybody, but um, what I think what happened for us, at least definitely for me was we were on the tail end. We overlapped the different strokes cast. Hmm. Um, and so you always hear these stories about, you know, child stars and what have you. But, uh, you know, the, the Todd Bridges and Dana Plato and Gary Coleman situation was, was really right there in front of our eyes, in front of our faces. So, you know, I think we kind of felt like, well, we really, we have no excuse. Like, you know, we see... Uh, how things can can go awry. So neither we nor our parents have any excuse uh, for uh, you know messing our careers up on you know due to sheer ignorance. Um, and you know to that point, I think we all had parents who were very much active uh, and involved in our lives. I think a lot of times what happens is when you see. Uh, you know, kids kind of go wayward, you have to look at the parents. And if the parents have fallen into the trappings of Hollywood, then there's no one there to give the child guidance and direction. Mm. So I think we were all very fortunate in that we we all had parents who were very involved in our lives and, and, and very, um, you know, very adamant that though we were on this number one show in the world, uh, there were still responsibilities that we had as, uh, you know, as uh, there were still f- uh, family responsibilities that we had and we were minors and, you know, our parents were not going to tolerate disrespect and we still had chores and all of that stuff. So our parents were really, uh, I think, really key in that. Yeah, and, you know, and you also had two um, TV parents who were you know, as far as the scripts were concerned, were learning such amazing family values you know, when, when you were acting, I would yeah, say. Yeah, and, and, that, and that was, that was not, not to discount that, <laughs> but that was all, um, that was all just, it was just fun. Like, I don't even know if, I'm not even 100% sure if we were looking at, you know, those episodes and kind of like, oh yeah, I want to apply that to our lives. We were just, we were just having fun. Um, and it was also at a time that I think because of what the show represented, uh, there was also a, an added level of responsibility. Um, whereas, so like with me, you know, those were my, those were my teenage years, mm-hmm. um, on the show that was not just the number one show in the country, but the number one show in the world. So, but because I understood what the show represented, there were uh, there were self-imposed boundaries 
that I had in place when I walked out into the world because I realized I was not just representing my mother and my father and Mr. Cosby. I was representing that show and everything that that show stood for. So I think that was, a, you know, kind of another thing in terms of, um, I think other young, you know, kids who, who grew up on television shows, those shows did not necessarily have the cultural responsibility that the Cosby show had. Yeah. Uh, so I think for us, that kind of, you know, uh, ingrained just a little bit more into how we, uh, how we walked through life and how we carried ourselves. You know, uh, you mentioned number one show in the world and the Cosby show was just gigantic. I mean, the world stopped on Thursday nights at eight o'clock when the Cosby show came on. Um, there's this idea out there that if you have a hit show, that um, every time you go to your mailbox, there's going to be a check with residuals and you won't have to work a day in the rest of your life. Is there, is there any truth to that? No. So there's this misconception. There's, um, there's back-end ownership of a show and there's residuals. Um, when you have a uh, you know, percentage of the back-end, then yes, you, you will see a check you know, uh, for the life of that show. Um, even when the show gets rebooted, you're getting a check. Uh, when, you, uh, when you're just an actor and you don't have the back end ownership, you get residuals. And I think what people don't, don't understand is uh, the residual is going to be a percentage of what your original check was. Hmm. So several years ago, I remember getting a first season uh, episode check for $64 hmm. because every single time an episode airs, you get paid uh, less and less of that percentage. So that $64 check was probably, let's say 10 years ago. So who knows what that check is? Now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of, you know, people out of ignorance, you know, have this concept. Oh, I got a hit show. I have a hit movie. I have a hit song out. I've made it. And it's like, no, you know, I always tell people that the, uh, the making it is half the battle. Maintaining it is where the real work is, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I wrote on, on a bunch of so shows, so I see your $64 and I raise you four cents. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten checks for four cents. Right. It costs four <laughs> to mail that check out. Exactly. <laughs> so you've made a lot of music in your life too. Um, a couple of years back, you did uh, a mixtape, the miles long mixtape. You followed that up with love and other social issues. Um, I want to play a little clip here and they get you to comment on it. This is uh, a record called helpless. I miss her. Like I miss my men's and them When we play shirts and skins But then still have to be home by dark Which sparked teases and taunts Of how you was just a mama's boy But all this mama's boy wants Is to be kept warm from the cold silence of loneliness And in the midst of all this flesh surrounding me The only kiss that's hounding me Bounding me, grounding me Into this resoundingly lonely state Which grates on my nerves it's her. It's her. All right, so tell me, tell me about your music. Have you always been uh, a, a person who's kind of driven by by music to some degree? 
Yes, I've always been into music. My um, my father. So people think Jamal is my middle name. So my first name is Malcolm Jamal. My father named me after Malcolm X and pianist Ahmad Jamal. Um, so I grew up listening to jazz. My father uh, went to Lincoln University with Gil Scott Heron. Uh, so I literally came out of the womb listening to Gil Scott Heron and The Last Poets. Uh, so the music was always just there. It was a, a part of my life. And then growing up, you know, especially, you know, when I was growing up as a teenager, every teenager wanted to be a rapper. Um, so, you know, I always had drum machines and four tracks and keyboards in my bedroom, always just kind of doing that stuff. But it wasn't until I was about 26, I was working on Malcolm and Eddie. Uh, it wasn't until then that I decided that I actually wanted to uh, pick up an instrument and study the language of music. Uh, so, Though I had always been into music, I didn't really set out to be a musician until I was about 26. Um, and you won a uh, a Grammy, right? Yeah. Yeah, we won a Grammy. Uh, wow. 2015. It's been six years already. And what did you win the Grammy for? So it was a, a record I did with uh, Robert Glasper and Layla Hathaway uh, called Jesus Children. And it was actually a... Uh, a cover of uh, the Stevie Wonder classic, Jesus Children of America. Hmm. Uh, Robert does a you know, great uh, arrangement. Layla Hathaway sings. And then I wrote a, a spoken word piece uh, that was in tribute to the kids from Sandy Hook Elementary. Hmm. And the record won uh, for best traditional R&B performance. Hmm. Yeah. Really, really, really great song. Um, and the Grammy was definitely a pleasant surprise. Is that something you continue to pursue, the music thing? Yeah, yeah, actually. Um, so you named those two records. Then I have another record that came out uh, in 2015 uh, called Selfless. Um, and, you know, I, had, uh, I have a three-year-old daughter now. So though the music and poetry is still a big part of my life, um, being a father is a bigger part of my life. And, you know, I'm sure, as you know, having kids will mice and men any plan. <laughs> so I've got this record, um, you know, I've got this record that was supposed to, it was supposed to be my, my quarantine record. I was supposed to have it out last summer. Um, but, you know, the pandemic uh, turned me into, and because uh, I wasn't, you know, we weren't going to work. So the pandemic turned me into uh, an indentured servant to my a three-year-old from yeah. like 7.30 a.m. to 8.30 p.m. Uh, so just, you know, life uh, life happens, but the music is still uh, a huge part of my expression. So you made a decision at some point in your career that you were going to keep your private life uh, private, that you weren't going, we were, weren't going to see your daughter, we weren't going to see... I guess it's your your wife. We weren't going to see. What, talk, talk about making that decision. Well, you know, so, social media being what it is, um, I know there will come a time where uh, my family, you know, won't be able to uh, get away from social media. So I'm just really just always trying to hold that off as long as possible. Um, and it's just my own, you know, it's just my own personal decision. Yeah, I, I think it's smart. And I think I've always, even, even you know, during Cosby, 
I've always, uh, just as as hard as I've worked in my career, I worked just as hard, you know, in, in keeping a uh, a private life. Um, I I was very fortunate, you know, during my uh, teenage years and young adult years uh, that there wasn't a social media. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. You know, we were very fortunate. Now, uh, young people are not as fortunate. Do you think um, social media is on? Do you, do you think it's on mostly good or mostly bad? Um, I think with anything that starts out good, uh, you know, uh, put in the wrong hands uh, with people who have uh, not so great intentions uh, will mess up everything. You know, but there, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of good aspects of uh, of social media in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, I've been exposed to things that I would not have been exposed to if it were not for social media. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I know more stuff, I think, because of social media. I, I yeah. know more stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then you and then you also know more stuff that you wish you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, true. And then you and then you discover that it's a cesspool. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. Well, and also, you know, we, we live in an age, I mean, you're, you're at a stage in your career where it's not as important, but, you know, for people who are trying to get their name out there and their work out there, you know, social media has put so many people on the map. So, yeah. you know, that's, I guess, the good side of it. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And then I, you know, I see people like, uh, like Matt Zucri. Uh, he has no, no social media. Um, and it doesn't seem to, you know, put a dent in his career at all. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm very admirable of that. <laughs> yeah, that's tough because now, you know, anybody that works in uh, the entertainment business, you're kind of judged by your number of followers, whether it be on Instagram or it be on uh, Twitter. And people are getting cast casted because they've got huge followings now. And people are being ignored because they don't have big followings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the days of uh, just being good at what you do <laughs> doesn't mean that much in, in some circles, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's not at the top of the list any longer. Right. Which, um, is the thing, which is the thing that, that uh, I always talk about, uh, just like, let's, let's take the audition process. For yeah. actors, right? Um, you know, 90% of the time, if you're good, let's say, right? 90% of the times you won't book a job based on things that have nothing to do with your work. Hmm. And even knowing that, you still have to come in and bring your A game every single time. Even though you know that your A game really may not be the thing that gets you this job or not. Right. And I don't know of any, uh, of any other industry uh, you know, that's like that. And yet, you know, we're still here. We keep going up to bat. We still keep serving up our A game with a 90% uh, likelihood of being told no. Well, and it's kind of like, it's kind of like the job is auditioning, right? That the, if you're an actor, isn't the job to audition to go out every day and to put yourself out there and see if you're the right guy for a particular role, as opposed to being on the set every day, you're working. But I think that the, the job of an actor is to go out there and face casting directors and casting assistants and all that stuff. Very much so. Very much so. Because oftentimes, um, you know, a, a lot of times they don't know what the producers and directors don't know what they want. They may have an idea. Sometimes they don't have an idea. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I always give, give audition stories because when I did, um, people versus OJ, yep. I, I actually read for Chris Darden 
Really? And, yeah. And it was it was probably, you know, I've interviewed, you know, I've, I've auditioned my whole life, but it sure. was probably one of my absolute best auditions hmm. ever. Um, so much so that casting director emailed my agent like a, a, an hour after I left was like, you know, fucking awesome. Hmm. And I didn't get a call. Yeah, I didn't book it. And then a couple of months later, I get a call from Ryan Murphy's office and they offered me the role of AC Cowboys. And that's one of the stories that, you know, I, you know, I use as an example of it's not always about booking the role. You know, being, being on the other side of the table, you know, you know, when I've had to cast people, there have been people who came in, they may not necessarily be right for this role, but they're so engaging. Their work is so good that I got to keep them in mind for something else. And that's, you know, that's often how actors work, you know, get work as well, because they may, just because they're not right for this, for this thing, um, you know, they were memorable enough that, you know, they want to cast you in something. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, listen, um, it's, it's been fun talking to you, man. Really appreciate it. Appreciate your work and appreciate your career and your music yeah. that we've all gone back and, and listened to now. And congratulations on The Resident. Uh, the season finale is coming up later on this month. Um, thanks, thanks for doing this. We really appreciate it, Malcolm yeah. Jamal. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Steve and Sue. Malcolm Jamal Warner, The Resident there, is is a very cool show. Um, and he does play a character that that is right on the edge of of bad, uh, but is mostly good. I think I, that's the way I described it. Yeah, so pretty it much. Have. Pretty much. And it must be such a fun role to do, you know, because you, you kind of get in the best of both worlds, you know? Right. You're, I mean, it's... You're a, a, good, you're a good bad guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so... I've got a song that's stuck in my head that's been stuck in my head for about three days now, and it is ridiculous. Oh, now you're going to make it be stuck in my head? I don't know if it would get stuck in anybody's head but mine. I'm not sure. I'm okay. not sure. So it's uh, it's actually the song, Stuck in a Moment. Stuck in a moment, and you can't get out of it. Oh, no. Look at you now. You got stuck in a moment, and you can't get out of it. No, 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 ringing a bell. No, and it totally will not get stuck in my head because I don't know who did it. It's you too. It's a you too song. Stuck in a moment. Well, you know what? Maybe your rendition of it made it so unrecognizable. You're not digging the the musical stylings of Steve Mason today? No, your cover of it. It <laughs> really cover? needs to be covered, like literally covered. Okay, uh, ready? Book a, book of questions. Ready? Here we go. Oh, wow. Look at <laughs> I've got an actual book filled with questions. Oh, my God. Okay. If you knew that in one year you would die suddenly, would you change anything about the way you are living now? I may start smoking cigarettes again. <laughs> a lot of people say that. I'm going to take up smoking again. Yeah. That's it. Would you still be out pitching shows and No. Golfing? Would, would you be golfing? I'd be, I'd be golfing every day. Just golfing every day. Golfing every day. Would I you would. wanna would you wanna stay uh at home or would you wanna travel? I'd travel. Yeah. yeah. Yes. 
I would go to all the places I always wanted to go. I'd eat all the food that I may not eat now because I'm afraid I'm going to gain weight. Yeah. I just wouldn't give a shit. You know, I just, just soak up everything I can possibly soak up. But smoking, I always say like, and people say, you know, like, what would you do? Like if they, you know, if like you were on a plane and it was going to crash and I was like, I would ask anybody on the plane if they had a cigarette. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, the way I do? Do is you would have to tear this microphone from my cold, dead hands. Seriously? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep doing the show. I mean, I'll sneak in vacations and I'll go places, but I enjoy doing the show. I have fun doing the show. Well, I have fun great. doing this one. I've got fun, fun doing uh, Mason in Ireland. Um, I don't see any reason to stop. Plus, can you imagine the sympathy train? You would be on the sympathy train like crazy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. But but I think but I think it's really, you know, it's it's lovely that, you know, you would want to continue doing what you're doing because you love what you're doing. You know, a lot of times, you know, people, you know, they win the lottery and and the guy and I'm not saying being a janitor is not an admirable job to someone who is a janitor. What do you have against janitors? No, I'm just saying somebody, you know, or or somebody who's who's in a job that, you know, you know, I, I, I it's guess it's just I a job, it. something that's just a job, just a job. And then like, oh, yeah, and I'll go back to work on Monday. I'm like, go back to work. What are you insane? Like, like if I were working, um, like you asked, you know, pitching shows. Yeah. Um, if I were working on a show, um, I, I, I would I would not want to continue working on the show because it takes up so much of your life. Yeah. That right. I could be doing other things like I don't want to like I don't want to be working on the weekends. I don't want to be you know, I don't want to get like, you know, 20 phone calls a day. Like, you know, how come you didn't do this? And, you know, how come this wasn't cut? And can you make this funnier? No, I'm going to die in a year. I don't need to have this <laughs> aggravation. I don't want to die from aggravation before I'm actually supposed to die. Yeah. Yeah, well, see, because I've done everything else on the air, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the gay thing or the bipolar thing or any of those things, um, this would be another thing. You know, I, I've, I, I've always thought that the, the best uh, broadcast personalities are the ones that are the most honest and the most authentic. And I think there would be nothing more honest and authentic than going through that process uh, on the air. Yeah, and I guess the cool thing in the time that we're living in is that you could be in other places and do the show. Correct. So that would be, you know, the best of both. That would be the best of both. You know, you could be in Tahiti on a beach and, you know, Sounds for, so good. You know, for two hours. Or, Sounds know, so good. Sounds so good. Mm -hmm. we're, we're getting ready to go on vacation. Yeah. So now I'm talking about got our vaccines. Now we're going to live our best life. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we're going we're to, going, we're to going on vacation. Yeah, you're you're doing uh, a trip to is it Big Sur? Palm Springs. Palm Springs. You're doing in a, Palm in Springs. The travel in the travel trailer. Oh, that's right. Camping. Camping in Palm Springs. Mm -hmm. And uh we're <laughs> we're going Well, what was that? Were you, <laughs> you making fun of me? No. No, I was just smiling. I was just smiling. <laughs> yeah, right. That um, was the subtext behind that smile. Franks and beans on on a fire. Is that the way that goes? Not with a chef husband. I'm Marsh, not, marshmallows I'm not, eat, I'm on not a, eating. I'm not eating franks and beans. My s'mores, friend. s'mores on a stick, Grilled that kind ahi. of thing. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah, he cooks great. Food. We're uh, we're going to Mexico. That's it. This is actually the last show before we go to Mexico. I'm really excited uh, to get out of the country, to travel again, to be a little bit more uh, free. It sounds like everything is moving in the right direction. I read yesterday, June the fifteenth, everything's supposed to be open and at one hundred percent capacity. Wow. 
Crazy. See you at a Dodgers game, Sue. Yeah, absolutely. See you on the golf course, Sue. Yeah. I can't wait. Oh, God. I, I got to get ready for, for this match. Got to get ready for this match uh, against John Ireland. All right. Hey, uh, there's one guy that makes this show possible uh, every time we do it, and that is Jacob Bumrani, my friend. Jacob Bumrani, friend for over 24 years. He's been doing this in town uh, for over two decades. And if you were involved in a car accident or a motorcycle accident or as a pedestrian, you want somebody on your side that knows how to handle that case, every single detail. You shouldn't have to do anything. Jacob and his team will do the whole thing. Um, and if you are in an Uber or Lyft accident, again, Jacob is an expert when it comes to those. Those get really complicated. So remember, accident or injury, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. If you're in Los Angeles, 844-24-JACOB. Or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call, Call Jacob. Jacob. Yes. You happy with that? Very happy. This okay, is a good. really great way to go out before vacation. It really is a great way to go out. Absolutely. Um, Sue, have fun today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we will see. Oh, I, I should mention, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review uh, the podcast. It means a lot to us, especially hit that subscribe button. And we will see you next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.